Hello and welcome to this episode of Little Bits of Stuff, a podcast that showcases different health-related topics for medical professionals and non-medical audiences. This show is brought to you by Nick Ate, a surgical resident at University College Hospital, Ibadan, Nigeria. And here's your host, Nick. Hi guys, this is Dr. Nick. A while ago, we did thyroid smackdown part one and we promise to bring to you thyroid smackdown part two here we are today with two important guests the guests you you've known as usual dr chico and dr naomi here to bring a robust discussion as part of the thyroid smackdown series and without wasting too much time let us listen to the discussions on thyroid smackdown part two. Oh, all right guys um dr naomi are you ready for part two i'll try i'll try all right don't worry it won't be that bad <laughs> <laughs> it'll almost be the same thing just a few additions um, i'll remind you that you're likely to answer some of the questions you've answered before but um probably with um just like dr nick said more robust discussion okay Okay, as usual, we'll start with a little bit of anatomy. A little bit of anatomy. So, what do you understand by the nerve, external laryngeal nerve? The external laryngeal nerve, um, that's a branch of the vagus nerve. It supplies the picothyroid muscle. It's the only, it's the, it supplies the picothyroid muscle, and that's the only muscle that is not supplied by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, it has it, it has a the superior laryngeal nerve has an external and an internal branch. The external branch is what supplies the cricothyroid muscle. The internal branch supplies um, the mucosa, I think, of the um, above the vocal cords. Supplies um, above the vocal cords, um, and then the external branch supplies the cricothyroid, and then the other uh, muscles of the, um, the other muscles are. The other ligaments, I'm sorry, are supplied by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. All right. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, it's not in every book you would see it called the external laryngeal nerve. Most of the more recent books will call it the external branch of the superior laryngeal. But in the older textbooks, you will see it called directly external laryngeal nerve. Um, what do you understand by the nerve of Galicucci? I think that's the same nerve. I think Alicucci is um, some Italian soprano singer who had thyroid surgery and then afterwards couldn't sing very well and it was attributed to her thyroid surgery. Um, and so I, the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve supplies the picothyroid and it's important in changing pitch. Um, so for singers, that's very important. And so if it's damaged, they probably will still be able to, I mean, they won't have difficulty breathing, they'll be able to talk, but then they won't be able to change pitch like when they're singing. So yeah, I think that's what that's about. Yeah, that's correct. The Amelita Gallicucci, that was a famous Italian soprano singer, opera singer, so who had a thyroidectomy and then had her, one of her external branches of superlanger nerves um, damaged, and so she couldn't go higher. The other sequela of the damage to that nerve is um, your voice, voice fatigue. Okay. Or is getting tired easily. So the person may not be able to speak for, for, for quite a long time. 
Um, so it supplies the cricothyroid muscle, like you said, and then the cricothyroid muscle, the function of that muscle is to tense the cord. All right. So, but which muscle abducts the cord? Uh, this is a real smackdown. <laughs> you know, tensing sure. the cord is different from abducting the cord. Yes. So, which muscle abducts the cord and which nerve supplies it? I'm not sure what muscle it is, but the only other nerve is going to be the external, um, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Yes, so I'll guess right. recurrent laryngeal nerve, but I don't know the name of yeah, the right. muscle. You're right, the recurrent supplies it. The name of the muscle is posterior cricoarytenoid okay, muscle. Thank that you. is the only abductor of the cord. The rest of the cord muscles adduct, and then the cricothyroid tenses. So that takes us to the question of um, which is more serious between a partial and a complete damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, and what is the explanation behind that? Somehow, which, is more, which is more serious? I think a partial is more serious. That's I correct. Th- I think if it's total, um, the muscle, the cords are going to be in. They're not going to be totally adducted. They're going to be in this. I don't know what's called the position, but this position where they are slightly open because the adductors are paralyzed as well. So they're sort of slightly open. <laughs> You are right about the partial damage being more serious, but I'm um, not quite right about the explanation. Although the explanation is still a bit vague, but um, it's based on the law of the law of Simmons or Simmons law, Simon S E M O N, which states that um, in a progressive injury to recurring laryngeal, a progressive injury is obviously a partial injury. But, that the adductors are first affected. Okay. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so before the adductors, sorry, the abductors are initially affected before the adductors, not adductors, the AB doctors are first affected before the AD doctors. So it's close. So if there's a partial injury, there is no counter effect from the abductor. So the abductors will just adduct the cord and I close see. it so there's no air going in. Mm-hmm. But you. the explanation behind that law is still vague. Nobody has been able to explain why it happens like that in a partial injury. Unlike in a complete injury where all the muscles are affected at the same time. Complete injury is like a, a transaction. So in that situation, the cord is slightly abducted not completely abducted, just somewhere in midway in between. So some little air stick goes in. So that is that. But nobody has been able to understand why it happens that in a partial injury, the AB doctors are affected first before the AD doctors. Okay. Right? So that's the so that the explanation for that is based on the Simmons law, which is not yet completely explained or has not yet been fully explained why it happens that way okay um what's the half-life of the t3 and t4 or what are the half-lives of t3 and t4 half-life of t4 is seven days about seven days half-life of t3 i think it's shorter but i'm not sure yeah it's, it's a day versus seven days a day so 24 hours versus one week 
right? So that's that. What do you understand by the Wolf-Chaikov effect or Wolf-Chaikov phenomenon? Oof, deep waters. <laughs> um, it's when um, when iodine when uh, iodine is oh I'm not sure I remember this one when iodine blocks the synthesis of thyroid hormones when extra when I, extra iodine is supplied and that blocks the, effect, the production of thyroid hormones. Yeah, you have an idea, but this um this a situation whereby exogenous iodine, excess exogenous iodine. Excess exogenous iodine. Because when you supply somebody with iodine, it will first of all lead to increased iodine, uh, iodine, uh, iodification of the thyroid hormones, is not? Yes. And then there will be excess thyroid hormone production. So the the person will initially have a hyperthyroid state, but subsequently, due to some feedback mechanism, there will now be a hypothyroid state. So there will, there will be an initial rise in thyroid hormone levels, but followed by the hypothyroid state. So that's what happened with the word Chaikov effect. Thank you. All right. Okay. Why might there be elevated thyroid hormones in the pregnancy? And maybe in some gynecological tumors like um, maybe higher tiliform mole. Um, in pregnancy, um, I, I'm going to say that um, the, there's an increased demand um, because of the growing fetus for thyroid hormones, and so the thyroid gland will need to do more work, produce more hormones. Um, for gynecological uh, malig- uh, gynecological conditions, I know that there's tumor ovari that produces thyroid hormones. Um, so that that's that's my answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, again, a bit of an idea, but um, not quite explaining. Yes, uh, pregnancy is a is a hypermetabolic state. There's a baby that uh, demands more from the mother. But um, the true explanation of that is about um, is um, is based on uh, hormonal um, hormone changes in pregnancy. There is elevated beta HCG, even epinephrine, leads to stimulate excess thyroid hormone production. All right, yes, those sir. two are also elevated in something like hydatinform or have excess beta HCG and you also have excess epinephrine. Both of them stimulate thyroid hormone production. So that's why you might have elevated um, thyroid hormones during pregnancy. What do you understand by euthyroid sick syndrome? Sick thyroid syndrome. That's like um, patients who are critically ill, like patients who are in the ICU. Um, so they, if, if one does a thyroid function test, everything will be low. T3, T4, TSH, everything is low. I'm not sure why it happens, but that's generally the picture. And then a critically ill patient, so one will think of... Um, but, but, but then they're euthyroid, but all their hormone levels are low, and then they've been critically ill for some time. Yeah, it's, 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 it's based on the steroid mechanism. And glucocorticoids um, like to be elevated. Okay. They inhibit thyroid hormone production in such severely ill patients. All right. So there is peripheral reduction in thyroid hormones, but there's no compensatory elevation in the TSH. Okay. In such patients. So when you do the thyroid function test, TSH appears normal, but meanwhile, thyroid hormones are low. 
So that's why they call uterus six and just like you said, causing severely ill ICU bedridden patients who probably are not able to mount um, the comp- compensatory mechanism. You know, it's a feedback mechanism. Yes. Starting from the hypothalamus. So that may have affected their ability to mount such feedback. Right? So, but how does it differ from Refetov syndrome? Huh? No idea, sir. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> All right. Um, Refetov syndrome is a syndrome that develops with an endorgan resistance to thyroxine, a T4. Okay. Endorgan resistance. People have tried to explain it by some genetic um, predisposition that leads to resistance to thyroid hormone receptors. So somehow the patient develops some resistance thyroid hormone receptors. So, of course, there is such a patient, you could still have, um, um, what they call it, the receptors are not Respond responding to the thyroid hormones. So the receptors are not responding to the thyroid hormones. So, so what, what will... could happen if you do a thyroid function test for such patients? Um, it okay. differs just slightly, differs slightly from your thyroid six syndrome. I'm going to guess that the TSH will be high. Yes. Because it's going to try to yes. force some more hormones out. Yes. So thyroid hormones may be normal, but TSH will be high. But the thing is that it's not producing, mm-hmm. it's not stimulating the gland to produce more than excess thyroid because there's an endogen resistance. But are these also critically ill patients or can be anybody? No, it can just be any patient. Okay. That's how it differs from repertoire. All right, what's the most sensitive single test for diagnosing hypothyroidism? I will go with TSH. Yes. The truth is that there is no single test that um that is enough to evaluate a patient with a thyroid disease. But if you must choose one test to give you some information or maybe enough, I wouldn't say enough per se, but... Um, if you had to just pick one out of, if you, of thank you, if you, if you just had the option of trying to pick one out of the all the tests, then TSH. But that's why most of the time when you get the thyroid function test result, the first thing you look at is the TSH. Once the TSH is within normal, you are almost as good as fine with that patient. So TSH is the most important out of all, all of those tests. All right. Thank okay. you. What's the most sensitive marker in medullary thyroid carcinoma? Medullary thyroid carcinoma, that'll be calcitonin. Thank you. So, yes. Yeah, produced by the parapolicular cells. So, sperm calcitonin. Okay. What are the various um, imaging modalities you could use to evaluate the thyroid gland? Imaging modalities to evaluate the thyroid gland. The first would be an, be an ultrasound scan. Thank you. I like the fact that you started with ultrasound scan. Yeah, and so what so might you see? it's affordable, it's available, although it's operator independent. Operate, operator dependent. But then What's it's readily available. On the thyroid one may see nodules, if Thank they're you. nodules. And that can assist in, um, if one wants to do a fine needle aspiration biopsy, then Thank that you. can assist in biopsying so that you know exactly what you're biopsying at the time. I know that there's a, um, I don't know if it's called thyroid, something like thyroid for breast, but there's something for thyroid. I'm not sure how to grade it. Um, That's, you're going into final aspiration. Oh, okay. So My forget bad. about that. Let's talk about thyroid gland, thy- the thyroid ultrasound scan. Yeah, apart from nodules, it could, the way they appear to 
could give you an idea of whether it's a benign nodule or a malignant nodule. Not if they are hard, if they yes, if they appear hard, you get or uh, soft. It could tell you about whether the the the, the, the nodules are hard or soft. Okay. The the report the nodule has had is suggesting there could be some form of calcification going on, tipping your mind towards a malignant condition. But if they are soft or like cystic, like you said, it could suggest a benign condition of pterygland. Okay. Yes, what else? What other imaging modalities? Um, one can also do thyroid scintigraphy. Okay. Using That's what? too much of a jump. Using what? Yeah, I agree. Okay, it's so using um, iodine 1, 2, 3. Okay. What's the half-life also... half of iodine 1, 2, 3? Uh, I'm not sure. 48 to 72 hours? No. No. The half-life is about 14 to 18 hours. Oh, okay. All right. So the one to three emits low energy radiation. So it can be used to image the gland. If you don't use one to three, what can you use? There's also iodine one three one. Yeah. But that's preferably used for treatment. Yeah, that's preferred. Not that you can't you still can use it to make diagnosis, but it's preferably used for treatment because of the high energy radiation it emits. It emits. All right. Okay. What else? What other imaging modalities can you use? Um. I guess one could do a CT scan, um, especially you. if you have um, retrosternal thyroid glands. Yeah. Um, to assess that, um, assess those, um, assess the vascularity and all of that, especially if you're planning for surgery. So a CT scan is beneficial. Oh yeah, I agree with you. What else? An MRI. An MRI, yes. Um, an MRI. I'm not sure in what particular situation one would want to do an MRI, but an MRI would be made with thyroid, I guess. Yeah, an MRI is a, could also suffice for um, a retrosternal goiter. It could suffice when you have a recurrence from um, maybe a malignancy. Okay. You could use an MRI. Yes. What else could you use? Um. Um. You could use uh, a PET CT scan. PET CT scan. Okay. Where you Thank use you. what was the radiating radio. 18 deoxyfluoroglucose. Yeah. Did I mix it up? 18 fluoroglucose. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry, I mixed yeah. it up. It's smooth, especially or oh, especially used when you have a recurrent um, malignant goiter. Okay. Could help. Okay. Um, when you do a radionuclide scan with your technician, I did one three one two three one three one scan. Um. It most of the time reported that there are cold or warm nodules or hot nodules. What do those signify when they report the nodule as cold? What does this signify when they report the nodule as warm? So a hot, hot nodule is one that's taking up a lot of iodine. Um, so what does so, it signify? So it signifies cold. that that's... Um, so if it's a, not, it, uh, like a, a, um, like a toxic nodule. Thank you. So... It signifies some form of toxicity to you, which tips your mind more towards a benign condition. Than a malignant condition. Yeah, but um, when they report a cold nodule, suggests more that it could be a malignancy. All right. What are differential diagnoses of hyperthyroidism? Let's hear how many. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, so differential diagnoses of hyperthyroidism. 
So okay. okay so um solitary is solitary solitary thyroid nodule. Solitary toxic nodule. Solitary Why are you starting with that? Okay, Graves disease. Thank you. Start from Graves, Graves disease. disease. Yes. Um, patients who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis could have an initial transient hyperthyroidism. Yeah, agree. Patients who have um, other forms of inflammatory thyroiditis, so a sub, um, an acute bacterial thyroiditis, a subacute viral thyroiditis, I they agree. could have um, some initial hyperthyroid features. I agree. Patients could have. Um, it, it could have a toxic nodular goiter. Toxic nodular goiter. <laughs> you haven't um, said no, much. Plumas disease. Plumas disease is toxic multinodular. Toxic multinodular goiter. So plumas yes. disease, they could have hyperthyroidism. Yes. But then one could also have the solitary thank you. nodule that yes, is thank you toxic. A, a solitary I mean, toxic nodule. Solitary mm-hmm. toxic nodule. Yeah. Um, I agree. What else? Um, much. Uh, malignancies typically don't produce a lot of. Um, are not typically toxic, so I would refrain from saying malignancies. Don't go there. There. No, okay, there so are some other, there. other differential diagnoses of hyperthyroidism. Um, we've mentioned some already. Talked about hereditary form or gynecological okay, conditions. So other, Things mm-hmm. outside the thyroid band. So you could think of exogenous supplies of iodine. Mm-hmm. Like amiodarone toxicity. Amiodarone toxicity. Alright. These people eat a lot of cabbage. <laughs> 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 so you think of drugs. Hmm? You think yes. of anxiety neurosis. Okay. Yeah, that could present with, with symptoms like so there's nervousness and all of that so it has munchausen syndrome yeah so just mention things like that all right now that you mentioned Hashimoto's, um i think i've given it away <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to ask you the commonest cause of hypothyroidism hashimoto's thyroiditis hashimoto's sir <laughs> <laughs> you grab that okay um what is have you heard of hamburger thyroidosis that is also no, sir. a differential diagnosis of hyperthyroidism. Oh, no, no, I haven't heard that one. Okay, yeah, it was actually an event that happened in the United States some, I can't remember the year now, I think 1984 or so, 1945, we are making um, hamburgers. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they have to put some beef mm-hmm. in the hamburger and all of that. So, without knowing that the beef they're using for the hamburger, it has some thyroid gland from the <laughs> bovine thyroid gland that is uh, probably that was probably toxic. So people that ate it had some form of thyroidosis. So that's why that's how it gained the name hamburger toxicosis. Oh, hamburger thyroidosis. What are the eye signs of Graves' disease that you know? Um, eye signs include proptosis. Um, patients could have. I would op- rather just say exophthalmos. Exophthalmos. Okay. Um, they could have staring gaze. You could have deep lag. What's, what do you call that? What's the name? Uh, what's the What's the name? Or who is the name of? Bonograph. Stare. Stare is a stale wag. Stale wag. So you, yeah, I think you should 
um, memorize it that way. Stare, stale wag. Stale wag, staring. Yeah, okay. so they sound alike. Yes, what else? Um, so there's uh, lead lag. Lead lag, what's an name for it? Reason you need to know the names is my my comment on MCQ as the names of the people. I'm just going to throw out all the names I know. Namziga, <laughs> I know Namziga, I know Moibios or Mibios. I don't know how to pronounce it. I know Von Graf. I don't know what they mean. Von <laughs> Graf is lead retraction. Lead retraction. Thank you. Was lead lag. Lead lag. Navziga. No, Navziga is actually a test. Okay. So it's not really a sign. It's Napsiga's method of checking for exophthalmos where you go to the back of the patient and then um, extend the neck and then to blow to look. So it's actually a test, not a sign per se. It's a test for exophthalmos. Okay. All right? That's it. Von Graf. Von Graf. Lag. Lag. All right? And what is Dalrymple's sign? No, sir. <laughs> that impose signs um, tremor of this levator palpebral superioris muscle. Tremors. Yes. So put into tremor. All right. Okay. So those are some of it. What about other signs? What, are, what other signs outside the eye signs of Graves' do you know? Aside eye signs, they could have pretibial myxedema. Agree. They could have thyroid apopathy. Or Acropaki. Um, mm. They could have. Um, what happens in thyroid Acropaki? Or how does it present? They have um, some sort of clubbing and um, and like the soft tissue connective they have, tissue. They also have onycholysis. Onycholysis. Nicolaisis, the nails are elevated, kind of elevated from the bed. So when you are doing thyroid examination, looking out, you went, you go to the hand, and then you elevate the hand. The examiners actually trying to look at you to see if you are looking out for all of that. But when they are not asking you about thyroid acropaki or what you are looking for on the nails of the patients, these are things you need to explain. You need to be able to explain. Okay. All right. In some males, young males, they could have gynecomastia yes, as part of Graves' disease, so they could present gynecomastia. All right. How do you administer Lugol's? What is Lugol's iodine? Lugol's iodine is a form of iodine. Um, form of iodine. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually potassium, an aqueous solution of potassium iodide. Potassium with iodide. iodine in water. Potassium so iodide and then iodine in water. water. So that mixture. All right. So, how do you administer it and what does it do in the thyroid gland or to the thyroid gland when you're applying for a thyroidectomy? So, for, um, it can be administered shortly before, like I think within a week. Five days to a week of, of um, the plan thyroid. Um, right. And it's the. It? I think it works um, based on the wolf Jacob effect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the, the goal is to. The goal, what is the goal? Yeah. Is yeah. to reduce the vascularity of the thyroid gland and make it more um, solid, easier to handle. Less friable. Less friable, so easier so to handle. It's, I mean, that orally. 
Yes. Uh, by drops. By drops. And what they do? You administer about chaser. three drops daily. Three drops daily for the 10 days prior to thyroidectomy. So it could help you to reduce the vascularity of the gland, helps you reduce the friability so that you could do your surgery more easily. All right? Yes, sir. Okay. We are moving into the operative parts now. <laughs> Deep waters. Yeah. Deep waters. So what options do you have in auto-transplanting um, excised parietary glands during the thyroidectomy? Or inadvertently excised parietary glands? What options do you have? Um, one of well, to mosculate the parathyroid and bury them in pockets in the stenoclerodermastoid. Okay. Um, the mosculation is just chopping them into, into about one millimeter fragments, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, that's that's one. Yes. What other option do you have? That, that's the only option I have. <laughs> if you don't auto transplant into the stenoclerodermastoid, which other muscles can you use? Pectoralis. No, it's not pectoralis. Um. The muscle in the forearm. Brachioradialis. Thank you. Brachioradialis muscle. Okay. Lucky so guess. Um, but there is um, ideally you should you expect to put titanium clips at that spot where you put them, so that in future if you need to probably patient manifesting manifesting some symptoms of lipo or hyperparathyroidism, you want to image know whether it's actually those ones that you transplant auto transplanted or the ones that. Uh, in situ in normal place causing the large popping causing the hyperparathyroidism. So you could do your MIPG scan. If you put titanium clips there, you could help you to identify where exactly you put the them. But when you auto transplant them, they'll be healing be healed. you may not be able to see them subsequently if you need to be revisit. So any so idea why break your radialis? Well Nobody knows. <laughs> okay. so probably because the the how widespread the muscle is. Let me give you space. Okay. Um how do you manage thyroid storm? You have thyroid patients that prevent this thyroid storm. Yeah, I'd like to start by saying preventing it. So if the patient okay. is going to have thyroid surgery or even um, a biopsy of the thyroid gland, you'd want to make sure that they are e-thyroid thyroid. and their thyroid functions are normal. Yeah, I agree with that. So prevention <laughs> first. So let's manage a situation where a patient has now presented fit. So a patient that has um, thyroid storm, so that's an, it's an emergency. Um, patient may need to be managed in an ICU or high dependency care unit. Um, management would include using, giving fluids, um, propanolol, beta blockers. If you have any condition that, that is an emergency like that and you're asking the exam, have your usual ABC. You resuscitate the patient, yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, so let's finish with that. So let's set that aside so you know that you have to start with your ABC resuscitation. So you sort out that. Yes, so let's go to the main meat of how to stop the thyroid storm. Other words could be used. Um, iodine, glucose iodine. Glucose iodine. Um, then anti-thyroid um, anti-thyroid drugs. Um, I guess propanolol. Yeah, or... I wouldn't start with the anti-thyroid drugs. I would start with some propanolol. Beta, beta blocker. blockers, propanolol. How do they? What would they do? They would reduce the um adrenergic overdrive um, they usually would have some 
tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, so yes. it actually reduce that. Peripheral conversion of T4 to the more active T3, so they will inhibit that. Then I will go to maybe lugosiodine, and then to antithyroid drugs, propylthiouracil, also prevents peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. So it also does almost a similar thing to beta blockers propranolol, then of course fluids, oxygen inhibition, and not breathing that well. That's it. All right. What are the types of thyroidectomies that you know? So it could be a total or a partial thyroidectomy. What is total thyroidectomy? So total thyroidectomy is removing the entire thyroid. It's all visible thyroid tissue. All visible thyroid tissue. Total thyroidectomy, yes. And then the the um the various forms of partial um thyroidectomies. Thank you. Ranging from a lobectomy. Tell me what is a lobectomy? So that's using a lobe, a lobe. <laughs> of the thyroid gland. Um, then there's a subtotal thyroidectomy. What is subtotal thyroidectomy? That's using a lobe and isthmus. Not really. The subtotal thyroidectomy, you remove from the isthmus, you remove parts, almost an entire lobe, almost the two and the two lobes in, in entirety, but leaving about the size they would people would usually say about two gram size of plant around the recurrent laryngeana on both sides but the isthmus is gone the, almost the entire two lobes are gone but the, 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 the usual debate about that how do you now know the how size two grams. Grams. so for that definition yes what else and there's also a near total thyroidectomy near total that's removing Almost all the gland, leaving yeah. maybe one gram or just enough yeah, tissue of, to the rim of thyroid gland, recurrent. just about one gram on one side or both sides. Okay. Then That's there could also be an isthmostectomy. Yeah, is just removing the isthmus. Just okay. like you know, patients who have vital thyroiditis. What is the done done here procedure? I don't remember. You <laughs> I don't remember. The lobe, the isthmus, and then part of the other lobe. Okay, what is Jod Bezdo's hyperthyroidism or Jod Bezdo's phenomenon? Um, that's when exogenous iodine causes um, increased production of thyroid hormones. Yeah, it could happen in patients that take amiodarone, patients that have um, abuse um, um, antitussives that have high content of iodine mm-hmm. to patients that are undergoing some radiological investigations that have to do with iodine as the, the uh, contrast, contrast medium. So, just based on this phenomenon. Okay. What's another name for Graves' disease? Hmm. Autoimmune. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Graves' disease is also called Bezdo's disease. Oh, Bezdo's disease. <laughs> Thank you. What are the complications you. of thyroidectomy that you know? Okay, so the complications can be immediate, early, or late. Okay. Um, it's intraoperative. Intraoperative. Um, so intraoperative. Don't forget the anesthesia complications as well, but um, intraoperatively, what and what could happen? There could be excessive primary hemorrhage. Primary hemorrhage. There could be damage to the recurrent laryngeal 
um there could be um, inadvertent removal of the parathyroid glands yeah. um okay yes then, then postoperatively or immediate postop period what happens okay, happen. could be don't forget your thyroid storm if there could be patients, thyroid storm yes, patients is not well controlled even if, even in a controlled toxic goiter you could still have the thyroid storm so that's why you have to get all your drugs ready get in your beta Okay, yes. So, so in the early postoperative period, patients could present, they could have difficulty breathing. This could yeah. be from tracheomalacia if they had a very big gland that, that was has removed. Been there for a long time, yeah. Um it could it could be from um injury to the larynge recurrent laryngeals. Yeah. It could be from um hypothyroidism if the parathyroids were injured, and it could also be from um if a patient has a tension hematoma, they could also right. present with difficulty breathing. Yeah. Um uh, and then we could have reactionary hemorrhage. All right. Um, and then the other complications that may be laryngeal edema. Laryngeal edema. And the intubation. Especially if there's a difficult intubation, larynx could become edematous. And then they would. Apart from that, the gland that has been present in the trachea as well. Okay. And then subsequently, there could be seroma formation if it was a huge gland and there was no drain, drain got blocked. There could be wound um, complications that relate to the wound. So there could be. Before you get to that, hypocalcemia. Could be hypocalcemia. Yes, hypocalcemia. Actually, some believe, some people believe hypocalcemia is the commonest complication of thyroidectomy. Hypocalcemia. All right. Okay. What is hungry bone syndrome? bone hungry bone syndrome is um it's a post-operative complication for patients who have um who have it's for parathyroid disease yeah it was so actually patients, defined for primary hyperparathyroidism patients who have hi- primary hyperthyroidism Hyper-parathyroid so the bones have been the all the calcium has been leaving the bones yeah. in response to the parathyroid hormones, hormones causing excess bone resorption so and the when the parathyroids are removed they start sucking up all the calcium because they're hungry and then yeah. patients present with hypocalcemia yeah severe hypocalcemia. hypocalcemia but it has also <laughs> been defined or been explained in thyroidectomy so how does that happen um it's the patient I don't know. I can't make it out. So, Following thyroidectomy is actually thyroidectomy for patients that have had or have been in hyperthyroid state, probably toxic goiter thing. The hyperthyroid state, the excess thyroid hormones have also been um, um, muted to cause some bone resorption. So that long-term stay with the excess thyroid hormones in the system also causes some bone resorption. So by the time you remove the gland that is causing that thyroid hormone same thing that happens was the same thing so that is that okay which thyroid pathology presents with a woody hard gland in palpation woody vital thyroiditis yes that's a riddle riddle thyroiditis thank why you why does it happen why does it it's it's a fibrous like it's a pathology it's fibrosing so it's yeah, not fibrous so tissue the gland, so the, the gland hardens the proper direct gland is replaced by fibrosis Mm-hmm. So excess fibrotic tissues. Okay. And that's an indication for, for an isthmostectomy. Yeah. To make a diagnosis. Yeah, that's good. Okay, what is Pemberton's sign? Pemberton's sign. So that's if um okay, that's in a patient who has a large 
thyroid gland. Um, but the signs are set up by asking the patient to raise up their hands. Okay. And then you notice that there's flushing of the face and um, congestion, engorgement of the veins of the upper limbs. Usually happens in retrostanal arthritis. And that's because there's reduced venous return from the head and neck and the upper limbs. Yeah, that takes us to retrostanal arthritis. What are the types of retrostanal But what is the retrostanal arthritis? Retrostinal goiter is when more than 50% of the thyroid gland is in the retrostinal position. Or more. 50% or more. 50% or more of the gland. Behind the sternum. All right. Okay. So, what are the types that you know? Could be primary. Um, It could be, I think it's primary, where it's it's, the the gland is primarily intrathoracic. Okay, let me try and arrange my thoughts. One second, please. Your course is primary and secondary types. So what's, what distinguishes them? That's what I want to know. The blood supply, where the yes, blood supply comes blood. from. Yes. From For the primary one, the blood supply, supply is from the, from the intrathoracic, intra-thoracic <coughs> vessels. All right. And then for the secondary one, it's still from the, from the neck, source sources. From the, neck. from the original gland supply. The external carotid. All right. So it draws, it it's moves with its blood supply down into the behind the stand. That's secondary one. So how do you approach such goiters? Other um, approaches. Well, so one option is to still approach it via a cervical incision. Yes, cervical approach. If, um, if if you can, you could scoop out the scoop it out. Yes, if not. The other approach is to do a median stenotomy. Yeah, stenotomy. Okay. Right. Do you know of any mass disasters in the past that led to so many cases of thyroid carcinoma? Chernobyl. Yeah, Chernobyl nuclear war plant explosion happened where? Somewhere. <laughs> Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, somewhere in Ukraine. Oh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. I can never know yeah, the date. 1986. Okay. What about what? What other one do you know? Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Again, again, I can again, never know the date. 1945. <laughs> the United States detonated two nuclear nuclear bombs, and then subsequently. So, how long does it take? for thyroid carcinoma to develop in such situations and what type of carcinoma do they present with? I think you're more with papillary thyroid carcinoma. I agree with that. Um, how long? How I'm, long? I, I'm not average, sure. Maybe 10 years. 20 to 30 okay, years. 20 to 30 years. Yeah. Okay. What's the size of the final biopsy did you do? Did you use for final last size? <laughs> what's what's below the size? belt? 18G? No, you are 22 to 23G. Okay. What? Is the only well accepted indication for emergency thyroidectomy? Well accepted indication for an emergency thyroidectomy. Um, if there's a large thyroid that's causing airway obstruction, maybe a rapidly growing thyroid malignancy that's causing airway obstruction. Why will it cause airway obstruction? That is that that is the indication. Um. If it's if it's, it's involving bleeds. the recurrent laryngeal nerves, no, it's going to be no? bleeding. If it's bleeding, if it bleeds into its intrathyroidal bleed, so it could enlarge more because an airway obstruction. Okay, what are differentials of a goiter that you know? Differentials of a goiter could be benign or malignant. Okay, <laughs> benign goiters could okay, okay so. Well, this could be. It's not just benign or malignant. They could be hyper. They could be toxic. Okay, so they could be goiter. toxic, not toxic. They could be inflammatory. They could be 
toxic inflammatory benign, benign malignant or simple benign you could just say it's simple goiters simple goiters toxic goiters, toxic goiters inflammatory goiters and malignant goiters okay then outside the thyroid gland what are the other differentials with goiters that you also this this four that we mentioned are on the gland itself outside the thyroid a lipoma could yeah, make so a thyroid gland um Said, remember I was saying you could we did, and I'm so ashamed like, I can't remember. Like, the space of bones. Yes, 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 I don't understand the question. Differentiated thyroid carcinoma. Differentiated. What prognostic indices do you know? I don't have a clue. <laughs> ahead of, I'm not sure. Ahead of AIMS and Oh, AIMS, AGs, SAGs. Okay, AIMS. So what does AIMS start, stand for? Age, okay. E is extent. What is it? Grade. Grade. Grade, age, grade, extent, sex. No, that's size. Size. Yes. Size. So um, ages is age, grade, extent, and size. Aims is age, metastasis, extent, and size. And what is Sages. No, masses. Masses. Masses is actually used post thyroidectomy. Oh. Um, when you must have excised the gland. Right. Mm. So, but I asked, what is the most important index with all of these indices mentioned? I would say the size. No, it is the age. The age. Age of the patient. If a patient presents at below forty-five years with a thyroid carcinoma, that patient has a good prognosis. But above forty-five years, prognosis gets worse. Worse. Right, it's the same reason why patients in patients below 45 years, nodal status, tumor size are not people are not bothered about them using them to categorize them. Most of the time, when they come, even if the, the node has already gland, the tumors metastasized the nodes, right? Patients are usually good at stage one when they come at 45 years and below. So by the time they go or they come up for five years, people start considering how much nodal metastasis has gone, how much size of the tumor and all of that. So age is the most important problem. Used to know. Okay. Um when you're doing a thyroidectomy, where do you raise the flaps to? Um the upper flap the upper flap to the level of the, the upper level of the thyroid cartilage. The lower level of the thyroid cartilage. Lower lower border of the thyroid cartilage, lower border. Okay, and then the lower flap to the. Stand I don't know. Stand on notch. Stand on notch. What Stand approaches to thyroidotomy do you know? Um. So the this conventional cervical approach. Open approach. Open approach. But then there are other minimal access approaches. Like people can go one? through the axilla. Yes. People can go inframammary. Yes. Some people can go through the mouth. Yes. All right. So All right. Are some endoscopic and minimal access. All in the bit to hide the scar. Avoid a scar. Scar. Okay. 
All right. What alternatives do you have if you if you're in a remote area you don't have a Jaws retractor? Jaws retractor, you have a Jaws retractor. Um well you can use sutures, you can use But what if you're in a in an established place and they don't have Jaws retractor, what else could they have in place of the Jaws retractor? It has a funky name, I can't remember. <laughs> Mahona. Okay, that's right. Mahona Thank retractor. you. Mahona retractor. I think that's basically it. We've um, gone through a lot on the fire exam. So with all of this, you should be able to answer almost any question, theory, MCQ, oral, direct land. I don't think there's any question that anybody ask you as a direct land with all of this we've done in in SmackDown one and SmackDown two. two. Yes. That's the question you're going to answer in direct land will hardly be outside those questions. So we're thyroid ready now. Yeah, more like, more like, more like thyroid ready. Yeah. Thank you, sir. All right. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the thyroid smackdown part two. It's been a very um, interesting dis- discussion. And I must say, as far as exam preps in Nigeria, West Africa is concerned, you can only have it this good on little bits of stuff with dr nick to be a part of this physically or remotely please send us a message on any of our social media platforms my whatsapp number is also on the little bits of stuff facebook page if you need it remember your feedback on how we're doing suggestions and comments are invaluable to us many thanks to my guests today dr chico you've been very wonderful thank you thank you so much Dr. Naomi, I can't thank you enough for making yourself available for thank percussion. Thank you for having me. I hope you're still not sweating. Naomi, thyroid ready. She will just deal with anybody that comes with any thyroid question. She will just mess the person up. Yeah, so I, I think she's good to go. So um, thank you. Thank you for listening. It's a wrap for today. See you in the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. And that's it on Little Bits of Stuff for today. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Podcast. You can also get it on Audio Mac and YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Lil Bits of Stuff. That's L-I-L-B-I-T-S-O-F-S-T-U-F-F. And on Instagram at Little Bits of Stuff. That's L-I-T-T-L-E Bits of Stuff. Until next time, stay healthy.